And now, another episode of Rick's Corner. Yeah! Nobody puts Rick in a corner. I have a special guest, a woman who has been really influential in emergency medicine for uh, decades, Louise Andrew. Louise, welcome aboard. Why, thank you. And I wanted to thank you for coming on. You are MDJD. Give us a little bit of your history with regards to uh, your early involvement in ASEP. Uh, well, I actually joined ASEP when I was still a medical student in 1974 at the personal invitation of George Pagorni, who was a, a previous president of ASEP, one of the earliest, and never regretted the decision, uh, despite the fact that I was at Duke and every single professor told me, don't waste your life on this crazy new idea. It'll never be a specialty. I said, I think it will be, and I want to be in it. So um, that's how I got involved in emergency medicine. And of course, it didn't take long before I realized that organized emergency medicine was the way to meet people and learn more, and also perhaps to have some influence over this exciting new specialty that we were entering into. And so with a bit of luck and, and a lot of hard work, I got involved in Maryland ASAP and did everything basically you can do within that chapter, and then got through writing primarily became noticed, I guess, by National ASEP and was involved. I was probably the, the third year of the wellness committee. I was on the committee and very soon I became the chair. And I was a chair several times over the course of my 40 years of uh, leadership in ASEP. I then became a lawyer for, for reasons that are, I guess, worthy of another session, um, primarily relating to concerns about malpractice litigation stress and the fact that that's a huge negative influence on all physicians and maybe particularly emergency physicians. And it's one that's completely unaddressed anywhere, at mm -hmm. least at that point, it had never been addressed by anyone else. So I took that on and got involved with the medical legal committee as well. And then I guess because of those sort of efforts, I also decided I needed to become involved with some of the politics of ASAP. So I ran for and was elected for uh, speaker of the council of the, which is the house of delegates of ASAP. And did that for a few years. And, you know, I just basically had many opportunities to help us with this exciting specialty uh, for as long as I was in it. Yes. Well, uh, you're being a little bit modest because you had a substantial number of accomplishments that you uh, achieved uh, during your tenure uh, at ASEP. So we are in your debt. Louise, the subject that I wanted to talk about today was uh, suicidality. And you have become very interested in that topic as well. And you, I think, are involved in some suicide-related work. Could you outline what you do in that regard? Sure. And, and I'll be happy to share how I got interested in that as well. I'm a fifth-generation physician, and my family also has a very, very uh, long and uh, pretty significant history of various aspects of bipolar disease and several suicides. And fortunately, I seem to have escaped most of that, but I sure did suffer when family members died unnecessarily, and especially when they were favorite family members because they had this very special bipolar two aspect that makes people both accomplished and often brilliant and fun to be around. So I, I was sensitized to that at a quite early age. And then I went to, I trained at both Duke and Johns Hopkins, which were excellent training institutions. But naturally, they were very high pressure. And as you might expect, there were suicides. And I personally became aware of five or six of them among colleagues and faculty 
And I was appalled when I saw these institutions more or less just wipe these people out of institutional memory. You know, if they were one of us, they would never have done this. It was a shaming situation. And I, I saw that as, as uniquely unjust, given that these people were vulnerable, were trying their hardest, and ended up probably in part because of the stress of the situations they were put in, finding it intolerable and therefore ending their lives. So this sensitized me even further. And just like litigation stress, I realized that this is another topic that we don't talk about in medicine. We don't talk about litigation stress because we like to pretend that we all practice perfect medicine and therefore we're all protected from malpractice, which is absolutely false. And we don't talk about suicide, or we didn't until very recently, because again, we like to pretend that we're perfect and that our institutions make us even more so and that therefore we would never stoop so low as to shame our profession by harming ourselves. I think that's also wrong. There was a rather uh, very mm -hmm. visible suicide. She was the director of uh, one of the emergency departments in um, New York City. Yeah, you're talking about Breen, Lorna Breen, whose suicide hit us all like a bolt of lightning because you know she's a sister. And she was someone who clearly had vast capability very possibly, you know, had that piece of the gene that gives you that exceptional brilliance and ability to accomplish things. And she was doing that right and left. And then COVID hit in one of the worst situations in the country, in one of the worst hit hospitals in New York City. And she was overwhelmed. And because of her sense of extreme responsibility, she was, you know, basically almost living at the hospital, I think, managing the shifts that other people couldn't manage. She was the director of the department. And she suddenly became completely immobilized. She had no previous history of anything psychiatric, but when she was immobilized, she knew something was wrong and she contacted her family and they said, you know, you need help. And she said, I don't know what to do. And so they brought her home to Virginia. She was hospitalized briefly for a suicidal depression. And she became convinced, not unreasonably, as a result of that hospitalization, that her otherwise stellar history throughout her entire career was going to be marked by this psychiatric blot and that she would no longer be able to have a license or practice medicine, which as it turns out in her state of New York, which is not a bad state, that would not have happened, but that could happen in quite a few states still. And it's thought that that was kind of the thing that threw her over the brink, though who knows for sure, one never knows for sure in these cases. We had talked uh, off the air about the idea when physicians are feeling the stress that there are programs set up at hospitals to help them out. But there's a dark side to that as well. And there's been stories of people who have gone through hell because they acknowledged that they were having problems, went to the um, whatever it was called at that, their hospital, and uh, everybody started to know about it. And uh, one thing led to the other and the medical board got involved and all kinds of lawyers. And it was a reflection of somebody who just needed some help, but went to a system that look, looked like it was going to work out for them, but it really didn't. Well, yes, I think the most high profile case that you and most emergency physicians may be aware of because it's been published is that of uh, a woman in Oregon named Susan Haney, who's very, very public about her experience. She had a low-level depression most of her life, handled perfectly with, you know, with the assistance of various people and occasionally with medications, I think. 
but she also had asthma and she was placed on high dose steroids for an asthma exacerbation, which made her for the first time in her life feel manic. And she said, wait a minute, this doesn't feel safe. I better not be practicing. Let me ask for some time off so I can get myself together. She went to her director who said, hmm, mania. Hmm. I think you better go to the medical board before you can practice. And she went to her medical board innocently and they said, well, hmm, we don't really have any program for dealing with people with mental illnesses. So will you admit to being an alcoholic? She's a teetotaler. But she said, do I have to do that in order to work? You know, now, now that she was back on the mend and doing, and doing fine mentally. And they said, yes, that's how it works here. So she had to do that. And to my knowledge, she has now been about 15 years out from this experience. She has spent Two, two to three hundred thousand dollars trying to deal with all of the various substance use related programs that she was stuffed into because of her mental illness, which was under good control with her own providers. And not only that, the medical board also publicized the fact of her illness and the fact that she was off work it was published in her local paper. So she did was able to work for a while as locum tenens. But unfortunately, it's not just the medical boards. It's also things like your malpractice liability insurers that ask these impermissible questions about whether or not you've ever had a mental illness. So she was unable to obtain malpractice insurance, which, as we all know, is is the death knell to practice in medicine, particularly perhaps in emergency medicine in the U.S. So there are many ways you can get yourself in trouble by simply admitting that you have a very common, in fact, the common cold of all of mental health, which is depression. And it basically starts with divulging to the wrong people that you've got a problem and then having those people not understand the laws. And also those people such as hospitals, such as medical boards, having an exaggerated fear of their own liability. If Mm -hmm. something happens for goodness sake, and this person had a diagnosis that, you know, we've seen in movies is responsible for all kinds of horrible things. Then we have on top of that, something even more pernicious. And that is that the very organizations that were set up to help doctors that are having illness and other difficulties, these are state-operated programs called physician health programs, have in recent years become really infiltrated thoroughly by people who are primarily interested in substance use issues and who have a very strong 12-step belief that nobody should ever be allowed to take any substances, even perfectly legal substances, such as alcohol, and that therefore anybody who has a mental problem needs to be put on, first of all, sent to a four-day evaluation at their own cost in an inpatient facility, they're almost always out of state, to do a multidisciplinary screen to see if they have anything that could possibly, possibly cause their to have any trouble with their practice. And then they are put into long-term substance use monitoring, which is expensive, incredibly inconvenient, and totally unnecessary if your problem is pure mental health disorder. So this is like a series of dominoes that go in the wrong way, and it was all most innocently accessed, but that um, everybody starts becoming afraid whether you're able to practice or not, when in fact, they don't really address the issues of privacy and the fact that these illnesses are such and can be treated. And any person who is not a doctor would be easily and normally treated without any fuss or must. You know, I've read some stuff that basically says if, if you're developing depression while in association with your work, that it would be best not to report this to anybody 
to go to a private psychiatrist. Don't put it on your insurance. Any thoughts about that? Well, I have mixed thoughts about that. An awful lot of people feel that way and, in fact, perform in that way. And the reason that they do so is based on a fear that a mental health professional that you see might be obliged or feel obliged in error to notify your medical board that you're having a problem. And then the medical board cycle starts to turn and then people end up in the situation such as our friend, Dr. Haney. The fact is that psychiatrists and other mental health professionals are only required to report legally when there is a direct threat to an individual or individuals by a person. And that's called the Tarasoff laws. That's a California thing. You probably know about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very old and very well understood. But Unfortunately, medical boards have adopted an entirely different philosophy, which is not based on law at all. It's based on, I think, their own fear of liability, which is something like an inability to practice with reasonable safety, which is an impossible thing almost to measure. And therefore, they err on the side of, you know, let's just have this person evaluated to see if, in fact, they're able to practice with reasonable skill and safety. So they send them off to these physician health programs who then send them off to these preferred evaluation centers who have no way to determine whether a physician is able to practice with reasonable skill or safety. What they are trying to determine is whether there is any problem with substance use, that's their principal concern, and whether there's any uncontrolled mental health issue for which they're not or are refusing actually to take treatment. And these things are done at the practitioner's expense, as I said, these programs, four to five days can cost up to $5,000. And they're often followed by uh, intensive long-term monitoring that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and is completely disruptive to people's lives. And it's all based on this perception, or it's not even a perception. I believe it's a, it's a prejudice that no one who has a mental health problem should ever be allowed to touch any substance. And the fact that these programs earn a lot of money doesn't hurt at all. Louise, uh, what you painted so far is a fairly scary picture for our listeners who are struggling with depression. What advice do you have for somebody who is exogenously depressed or endogenously depressed that where their work is an issue, their family is an issue, their coworkers are an issue? What can they do so that they don't go down this rabbit hole and yet still try to get help? Well, like the first thing to do is to acknowledge, even though it's not always easy, that they're not alone, that this is a very common problem and it's becoming much more common after the onset of pandemic. And that they do, although maybe if they're severely depressed, they don't feel like it at the moment, but they do actually have a huge network of supporters, starting often with family and colleagues. And then, of course, there's a whole professional community, including their own personal physician, There are counselors and psychologists, as well as psychiatrists, who specialize in treatment of physicians. And if they can't get adequate relief through a family physician who has no obligation to report to anyone unless the patient actually is a direct threat to some other person, then they probably are going to be fine getting treatment that way. If they don't know where to turn or what to do, and particularly if they're feeling acutely suicidal, there's actually a new service called Physician Support Line. And this was started up by several psychiatrists. It's now got over, I think, 700 um, about two years ago that will, will do a voluntary free consultation. It's obviously not a substitute for medical care, but it will help to assess, you know, are you right now in a situation where you do need urgent help? 
and where is the safest place and quickest place that you can obtain the help that you need. It was my understanding that should a physician become suicidal, that they should basically be hospitalized and taken out of the environment. And for us, not wanting to let everybody know, just because of this fear of leaks and and the like, you have to go to your medical director and say, I need to get off of the shifts beginning now. And that that's really hard to do. And I personally think that to do that, you may have to lie. You may have to say, my mother's seriously ill. Something that is viewed as socially acceptable, or that'll get you out of here immediately, and which uh, where you don't have to kind of acknowledge the whys of your doing this. Because in fact, in this case, perhaps the medical director is not particularly sensitive to these issues, or uh, you're, you're just concerned that people will find out. What are your thoughts about that? Well, let me take it in succession. Your, your first issue was, you know, does a suicidal physician need hospitalization? And the answer is that a truly suicidal physician probably does need hospitalization more so than a truly suicidal individual of just about any other description. Mm-hmm. And the reason, of course, is that we know how to kill ourselves. <laughs> and oftentimes, though not always, uh, we, we may have access to the means to do that. So I, I studied with Mike Myers, who's um, a, f- a physician expert in suicidology. He wrote a great book called Why Physicians Die by Suicide. And, and he's a firm believer that, that you need hospitalization if that's the case, if you are truly suicidal. And he would push for that. And in fact, I have escorted colleagues who were suicidal to a hospital for hospitalization and watched this process unfold and absolutely believe that it was a life-saving maneuver. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, rec- I would highly recommend that. And I think it's often necessary. But the second part of your question is sad. It's so sad that, yes, if you need time off, you should be able to take time off for any kind of illness. If you are having chest pain, if you are having a diabetic exacerbation, if you're having COVID, there's no reason that you wouldn't be allowed to have time off. So it's, it's highly discriminatory that any differentiation should be made if what you're having is an exacerbation of a depression or a mild mania or whatever. So people do lie and they shouldn't have to because legally they are entitled to medical leave for a personal illness. It doesn't have to be a family member's illness. You shouldn't have to lie and say it's a family member's illness. And in fact, if you were to do that, you'd probably have to have medical documentation of the fact that you had a family member who was ill. And that would create another chain of untruths that could ultimately backfire against you. So although I know it is done, I certainly can't recommend it. And I think it's very sad that physicians, unlike the rest of humanity, are put in a situation where they feel they have to do that. I think that that's the uh, correct answer. I'm not so sure it's the pragmatic answer. When you want off immediately, that's generally viewed as a pain in the butt for the uh, ER director. And so you better have a good excuse to want off immediately. And parents are generally a good excuse. You can't use it a lot, <laughs> but that would be uh, uh, generally acceptable. So I think you need a socially acceptable excuse to basically say, I need off shifts beginning now. Um, I think that's changing, Rick. I mean, I, you and I are the same generation, so we can say, yes, that's the way we used to have to do it. But I think in the last two years, since Lorna's suicide, And since so many other physicians have come forward with their own stories of actually having attempted suicide and having come back from the brink, 
it's becoming recognized that this is a very common condition and it's one that's easily treatable and it's one that is actually protected by law. And therefore, if you were to say to your ER director, I know this is a pain, but I think I'm going down the tubes here. And if I don't get help, I might not be here next week at all. So give me the time off that I'm entitled to under federal law. Well, I think if you said that, you would you would be given enough time immediately. Well, I think I think you're thinking of it in a much harsher term than I am. <laughs> I don't think you'd be fired. I don't think you'd be. No, 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 no. I I agree. I think that if you put it as you as if you have suggested okay. that that you will be given off time immediately, because once you tell your director that you're concerned that this may be a consequence, they're going to facilitate what you need to have happen or be willing to. Well, they have no right by the way, to report you to anyone unless you have actually exhibited that you are a direct threat to someone. Right. But if you assure them, you know, I have a doctor lined up, I'm going to see him or her this afternoon and get this taken care of, then they have no even reason to worry about that fact. Another topic, is there telltale signals that a person is going down the path most of the suicides I understand really don't give any discernible uh, clues and don't even have a pre-existing psychiatric diagnosis. Do you have any thoughts about how we may be able to kind of get a sense that a person's having an issue? Well, it is true that, uh, again, being raised as perfectionists who, uh, who never can admit to any infirmities or even shreds of humanity, Doctors tend to be intensely private about these things. And if you look at psychological autopsies of physicians, you know, often interviews with uh, even, even their spouses uh, will reveal things like, gosh, he never told me there was an issue. Uh, he just disappeared one day and we found him in the woods with a hole in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- that is a problem. However, there are certainly uh, situations that you need to be alert to that make people much more likely to be entering into a suicidal depression. The most prominent one is if you already know they have a depression or maybe there's sort of, you know, what we call cyclothymic. They're people who are never, never seem to be very happy, just always seem to be a little bit of, you know, curmudgeonly or not depressed, but just not happy. And if that kind of a person suddenly changes their behavior and starts becoming really say nasty when before they were just sort of sad, that is, you know, maybe a sign that they are changing and that they are having a situation that may be leading them towards suicide or at least a more severe depression. If they have substance abuse, and this, of course, includes alcohol, that is a situation that could make them more susceptible to both depression and a suicidal level of depression. If they have chronic pain and they're coming to work every day saying, you know, I just can't take this pain anymore, or you can see that they're taking a lot of pain medicines because they're having chronic pain, that's a huge stimulus to suicidality. And if you have any knowledge, though you often wouldn't, but occasionally you do, that they've had a previous suicide attempt, that's a big red flag. And then there are certain situations where also physicians are known to be at especially high risk, and that's when there's any change in their status. For example, if they lose a job, or their license is under any kind of threat whatsoever, or they're being forced into one of these evaluations, or they are undergoing sham peer review or peer review that is not sham. In any case, it's extremely often stressful. 
So this is a high risk kind of situation. If they've recently lost any form of social support, you know, in the general population, being married is actually a good, helpful support against depression, but not in women physicians. In us, it's the opposite. <laughs> what, what does that say? Yeah. What does that tell you? I think it's pretty clear. But if there's a divorce or a separation, you know, that's a significant loss of support. Even if it's something that has to happen, it's still a loss of support. And that is a situation that puts you at somewhat greater risk. And then, of course, if there is a, an illness of a medical variety, someone who's been hale and healthy their entire life suddenly has a stroke or a heart attack and can no longer function, even though it might just be temporary, you know, that can throw a huge psychiatric burden on top of a low-level depression and trip it over into the suicidal range. You know, one of the things I often thought was a sign that a physician is struggling is that they come to work 10 minutes late and that they continue to come to work 10 minutes late. It means, I think, I just don't want to be here. And at least for me, and I talked to Greg Henry, Greg Henry is the same way. He was very concerned about the 10-minute late doctor to take them aside and say, you know, is anything going on here? Because obviously you can get to work on time should you choose to, but you're not choosing to. So help me out here. Tell me what's going on. Well, no, I quite agree with Greg. I don't, I don't think that 10 minutes late necessarily is a sign of suicidality, but I think anytime habitually does something that is just not in character or is not consistent with good medical practice, like showing up 10 minutes late, it's a kindness, a courtesy, and it can be a life-saving intervention to simply take them aside and say exactly what you quote him as saying. You know, is there anything going on? Can I help you? You know, I, I'm concerned and I want to be there for you if you're willing to share with me. Right. I, I think that the idea is to try to have colleagues who are, you know, looking out for each other and looking for clues that things may not be going on. And if they don't feel comfortable approaching the um, person, then, the, you know, maybe the director has the skills to do that. You know, the nurses could approach the director and say, you know, Dr. Frank is just kind of being short with patients now. He wasn't like that before. He doesn't seem to be very happy, and maybe there's something going on. And if the nurse tells it, you know, the director, then the director can go. And it's easy then. Some of the nurses have said. And once they say some of the nurses have said, that means you've been discovered. Your veneer of trying to be normal has broken down, and you've been discovered as somebody who is probably having a problem. And I think just the opportunity to be called on it and to um, respond to it, I think, are really powerful things to be able to do. Well, ER nurses, as we all know, are unbelievably good observers. And they've also, many of them, been around a lot longer than some of the younger ones of us. And they've probably seen this before. And so if an ER nurse came to me as a director and said, I'm concerned about Dr. So-and-so because of you know, the things that you've mentioned, I would take it very seriously. And I wouldn't look at it as being found out. I would look at it as, look, here is an even more seasoned, concerned colleague who is worried about you. We're all worried about you. We want you to be the doctor we know you are. And if there's a problem that's making that hard for you right now, we want to help, but we need to know how. And so please you know, share with us so that we can get you the help that you need in the safest possible way. It would be such a relief, I think, to be uh, approached in that way. 
and be able to kind of say, well, here, you know, I do have some issues going on and to be able to talk to somebody about it. It is. And people who've come back from that situation have come back and said, you know, if you hadn't done that, I probably would. I mean, I had a gun in my car. <laughs> I was ready. Or I had a bottle of insulin in my pocket, which I take home with me at night and look at and think, should I do it now or later? Mm -hmm. Scary stuff. But the job that we work at, basically, I think is particularly stressful. Everything has to be going right. I mean, your, your family life needs to be going right. Your economic life needs to be going right. You can't have any substantial stressors because the job itself is st stressful enough, particularly in the last two years when none of us has any experience going through what our colleagues have gone through. Well, I think it feels that way often, you know, that everything has to be going right. But in the real world, practically nobody has everything going right. It's just that right now in this world, many of us have more things going wrong than we're normally used to handling. But we do have each other. We do now have acknowledgement of the fact that this is a most difficult time for a variety of reasons. And we do have some mechanisms to get help and certainly support for our decisions when we make the decisions to get help. And we have laws that protect us from being discriminated against when we do get the help to which we're entitled. Louise, do you, um, I mean, you hear about burnout all the time. And um, I saw a recent Medscape survey where emergency physicians were number one. Last year, they weren't number one. This year, we've made number one, where 60% of the physicians say that they are burned out. I kind of sense that burnout, in some ways, equals depression. Mm -mm. But you don't agree? Absolutely not. And I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but I've certainly looked at this specific question because so many people make that assumption, and it is false. Hey, listen, listen, I knew that was false. I just set it up so that you I know. know. I know you did, Rick. You're doing me a favor here. So, um, <laughs> you know, we knew in the early 80s that burnout was likely to be an issue in emergency physicians, and that's actually kind of what got me into the whole wellness shtick uh, with, with ASAP. But it's only been in the last maybe 10 years that we've finally come to realize that burnout, there's some certain symptoms that are associated with burnout. And if you have one or two or three of those symptoms, then you probably are experiencing some manifestations of burnout. But burnout is an occupational stress syndrome. Burnout is what happens when the demands of your job exceed the ability of any normal human being to fulfill the demands in the manner in which they'd like to, which being physicians would be perfectly. Whereas depression, of course, is a medical illness that has to do with alterations in catecholamines and also frequently genetics and may or may not be associated with burnout, but they are definitely not one and the same. There is not even a continuum between them. If you have burnout, that does not mean that you will become depressed. If you are prone to depression or already have depression, and then you become burnout, yes, your risks of having a more serious depression are higher, but they are two entirely distinct phenomena. Here's an easy question. Do you have any thoughts about burnout, the prevention of it, the treatment of it? Because I see emergency departments and I see them really quite dysfunctional, and they've been that way for decades. And we're still holding admitted patients, and, and CEOs have chosen not to solve that problem. And so my sense is, is that if you're going to wait for the hospital to fix up its department, 
you're going to be waiting a long time. And I think that I most recently have thought, you basically have to work on yourself rather than saying, I'm going to wait till they get these patients out of here who are being held here and which are being a source of constant angira. But it will be much more cost-effective if you can work on your perception of your job. Or be realistic about the fact that you do not have to stay in a toxic job. That doesn't mean it's easy to change. But when you, you know, you know, the story of the canary in the coal mine, if you've right. got a canary conking out in the coal mine, the solution is to get the canary out of the coal mine, not to just watch them expire and then say, oh, okay, I guess I'm next. <laughs> so you change the things you can change about your job. And oftentimes that requires being vocal, even risking your job by stating the fact that you don't have adequate, say, PPE or communications mechanisms with patients, families, or, you know, time to go to the bathroom or to eat or drink, you know, to do the things that normal human beings are allowed to do when they're at work. And sometimes that that is going to probably end you up out the door. And that has actually happened to me, I have to say. But on the other hand, if we don't say something, you can't just turn yourself into an automaton that can function without food, water, bathroom breaks, or any mental health stability, but just a steady stream of patients who are not cared for well because there's not enough staff to do so. And therefore, they get sicker or die, and then you get sued for it. You can't adjust your brain to correct that situation. I guess one of the sad things, though, is that there are so many nurses who have gotten burned out, who have stepped away, that virtually all of the hospitals are short-staffed every day. And there doesn't seem to be an easy answer. And when you see that and go to work every day, knowing that there's going to be short on nurses, it's kind of like, oh, gosh, here we go again. Yep. If there's anything as frightening as the number of suicides in physicians, it's the number of suicides and, uh, of course, job exoduses in nurses, without whom we in emergency medicine can't begin to function. And in fact, I don't know if you, there's a recent case where, where a nurse who made a medication error that was in large part caused by short staffing and inadequate attention to detail in stocking the Pixis machine and a number of other things was uh, convicted of homicide for what was a group error caused by systems issues. Yes, um, she's sentenced on May 13th. She substituted recuronium for Versed. Mm -hmm. And there were a variety of reasons why that happened. It wasn't just mm -hmm. couldn't read. But if I were a nurse and I were looking at her case and I were looking at the short staffing that I have to face at every shift and wherever I'm working, I'd probably say, you know, there are better ways to earn money. And even if I don't earn money, there are easier ways to die than to go through this. Right. I just hear all about this backlash that has occurred as a result of this nurses being convicted because she will be sentenced and she will, you know, the sentence, even if it's a matter of months, the fact is that she's been convicted for this crime. This is a criminal investigation that occurred. You know, sometimes when, when you cross the line, it goes from civil to criminal. I mean, there was an anesthesia case at our hospital where the nurse anesthetists were not being observed carefully and something happened badly and it was considered to be so egregious that the uh, anesthesiologist was held criminally. That is a really scary business when that occurs. 
Well, and often it occurs as a result of prosecutorial overreach. It's some, someone who wants to make a name for themselves mm-hmm. and or a hospital that wants to avoid its own liability in the situation by throwing the person under the bus, as it were. Any words of wisdom for all of the clinicians who are listening out there? Some of them are, I'm sure, just fine. Some of them are not. And I'd like to be able to help them in some way. And in terms of developing an attitude or frame of reference or something so that they can tolerate this without necessarily leaving emergency medicine. Yeah, we'd all like to keep the best doctors in emergency medicine. So, you know, with that in mind, the first approach would be to recognize that we are all in this together. It has been a horrific couple of years for everyone in emergency medicine, everyone in medicine, everyone in the world to some extent. It might possibly be on the brink of starting to get better. We still have to be extremely active in terms of promoting those things that we know will promote our own well-being in the workplace. And that, for me and for many others, required getting involved in organized medicine and pushing for unpopular views, even at the risk of personal reputation. The next thing to remember is that since we are all in this together, we're all suffering to some extent, and it behooves us, even though it's not natural to us as physicians, it still is an option for us to reach out to one another and say, you know, this situation is really getting to me. Are you feeling it? Is there anything that we can do together to try to impress upon whoever we need to impress upon it that this is an intolerable situation that is likely to cause harm to patients and to individuals and to the hospital and the system if it's not addressed? And the third is that there are options available. And even though we want all the best people to stay in emergency medicine, still, there is no other specialty that could possibly be as well prepared to jump into as many other life pursuits as emergency physicians are. We are incredibly well situated and an awful lot of us have have already done that, including myself. You know, as I told you, I retired into regenerative medicine, which I thought was more compatible with a long and productive and healthy and happy life after 35 years in emergency medicine. Yeah, I I think that that's true although we're not quite sure what we're going to be good at. And many of us will back off and go to urgent care where when I talk to physicians in urgent care, they basically make it very clear that it's substantially less stressful than being in the ED. It is. Fine, because you aren't responsible for, you know, all of the dangerous, horrific things that can happen to people. You simply take care of their problem today and refer them on to a better place. There are also a lot of emergency docs who are transitioning into palliative medicine, which seemed so odd when I first heard about it. But yet, these people are among the happiest, the ones who actually are making a difference with respect to people at the ends of their lives. And then a number of us, and again, this is part of regenerative medicine, have gone into pain management. You know, interventional pain management is one of the most enjoyable possible specialties because people who've been in pain for months or years get up and say, oh my God, this is the best I've felt since, you know, 1950. (laughs) So there are lots of things we can do and we can learn them because we're emergency physicians. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. My mom, I was very uh, pessimistic that that this pain doctor was going to help her severe back pain and lo and behold, she was so much better. And it was like, wow, I'm not sure why I was so skeptical, but the fact of the matter is, is that 
she got a lot of relief from it. And I was so, you know, appreciative of that physician because of the what they were able to do in a short period of time that lasted a long time for my mom. And so it's kind of like they did a, a really pretty spectacular job for her. Good. We're trained in, in medicine that, you know, all you could do, particularly in emergency medicine, all you could do with pain, if it's not like broken, is throw medicine at them. And that, as we all know, has its own set of side effects and problems and is all, always a short-term move because it doesn't get at the source. But once you get in with a properly trained interventional pain management specialist, they can do wonders. And yet in emergency medicine, you never see that. You just get the ones who haven't been to such a doctor and therefore keep coming back with this pain that all you can do is, you know, hand them medicines that you'd really rather not be handing them. You know, I, I know two doctors who got palliative medicine boards, and I thought when they did that, I thought, geez, I'm not sure of the connection, but I met another one a couple of days ago who, who is a, a palliative medicine physician. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, when you think about what they're trying to accomplish, given the fact that this person has an incurable illness, that it's basically measures of, of comfort and um, relief of suffering and things that we have the tools to do generally. And the things we went into medicine to do. Right. So I think that emergency medicine and pain and palliative management are much closer than you would think in mm-hmm. terms of being brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Let me say something I forgot to say, but it's very important. And that is that if you are speaking to a colleague who you're worried about, a very important question to ask them is, are you considering or have you thought of harming yourself? People are afraid to ask that question because they're afraid maybe I'll put the idea in their mind. But trust me, if you're a doctor and you're feeling that bad, it's already in your mind. And the fact that someone is willing to ask you, are you thinking of harming yourself can be such a relief because then you can finally tell somebody, yeah, I I did have this in mind. And then you can get some help. That's, That's really important. The other thing I wanted to say is if if these topics are of interest to you, I work with um, NorCal Pro Assurance Company, and uh, I've done, I think, four webinars for them on burnout, both from an individual perspective and an institutional perspective, depression and suicide prevention for physicians, and also uh, malpractice litigation and second victim syndrome. And I did them all on the proviso that they have to be available to all comers, whether or not you are insured. And they were very happy to do that. So they're all free online and they're just full of useful information and references. The other thing I, I would have to mention is that I, I actually um, represent 65,000 senior members of the American Medical Association at the moment. And the AMA, which I always resisted joining for a long time, actually has wonderful resources on burnout, suicide prevention, practice management, and almost all of them in their Steps Forward program, for example, are free to all comers. You do not have to be a member. So well worth exploring those resources to get more information about these sometimes life, really critical life-saving issues. Uh, Louise, to get the ones from, is it NorCal? NorCal, mm-hmm. Uh, they just go onto your that website and nose around a bit. Yep, you just uh, look up um, NorCalGroup.com. NorCal N O C R A L dash G R O U P dot com, and then look for their wellness resource page, which is where all these things are. There you go. Maybe we can get some questions from you in the audience. 
just e- email me as usual, wrbucata at gmail.com, wrbucata at gmail.com. Send me your questions, your comments, your concerns. Maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk to Louise again. Louise, thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. I, I know that there are listeners out there who are going to be relieved that we talked about this and make them feel better about how they can approach these issues, whether they're depressed or suicidal themselves, or they basically work with people and, and they want to be, intervene and give them the courage to basically go and talk to your colleague and just ask, are things okay? We noticed mm-hmm. that this or that, and, and we just want to help. And are you thinking, or have you even considered doing anything to yourself? Because I'm here for you. Got you. Good terminology. Thanks, Louise. Appreciate it so much. Thank you very much, Rick. Bye-bye. Rick's Corner.